Thank you for that wonderful worship, Dan, and choir instrumentalists. It's great to be with you all today, and we're so grateful to God for our worship together this morning. If you would open with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 48. Well, the world met Nadia Comaneci in 1976 when she was just 14 years old. Maybe you recognize the name. She took center stage at the esteemed Montreal Olympics. For her, the routine that she was performing was just another gymnastics routine. She had practiced and perfected that sequence a thousand times. So although she was now performing in front of millions of viewers, there was no doubt in her mind, the thought of not nailing the routine wasn't even an option. So hands by her side, she jumped up to grab the uneven bars, swinging, spinning, floating in the thin air between them. And as expected, she performed her routine with flawless perfection. She moved with elegance and grace and twisted and contorted her body with style and hit every goal with precision. To the world, her gravity-defying performance was groundbreaking. And still, after finishing her show-stopping sequence, all that was left to do was wait. She wouldn't have known she was about to make Olympic history. You see, before this, no one had thought that perfection was even possible in gymnastics. No one thought that it was possible to present a flawless routine. No one had ever before received a perfect 10. And she got one from all seven judges that day. In fact, she would go on to do it six more times in events later in those Olympics. You see, in the world of gymnastics, a perfect score is extremely uncommon. It was almost impossible to achieve a perfect 10. Daniel Bauman, the director of Swiss Timing, was responsible for creating the scoreboard that displayed the scores of each gymnast when they were done. You can still find it today, the picture of Nadia Comaneci standing next to the scoreboard. The score next to her in all three digits says 1.00. Says Mr. Daniel, I was told a 10 is not possible. With no expectation of a perfect 10, he didn't even program a scoreboard that could display one, even though that was the standard of measure. So she stood next to one. Point zero zero. It was the performance of a lifetime. In a word, it was perfect. We come to the words of Jesus today in Matthew 5:48. I hope they are as startling to you as they are to me. Perfect? You are to be perfect. Well, put me on the side of the scoreboard maker. I didn't even know that was possible. I've never seen that before, have you? In fact, I was taught there are no perfect people. That if you go looking for perfection, you'll just get let down. 
You see, there are a number of things that Jesus says that will leave you scratching your head in the New Testament. He has some hard sayings, and this is certainly one of them. Sometimes it's easier to just read it and keep moving along. Nothing will make you want to get to the passage about, let's see, giving to the poor and how to pray like this be perfect stuff. Let's just keep going. We'll talk about the other ones, not this one. And yet nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount and in the conclusion of what's called Jesus' five antitheses, here is this summary statement. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you imagine telling that to the people around you day to day? Or you're Jesus and your disciples have left everything they have to follow you. They're trying their level best to figure out what you're teaching them and to catch up, but, but they're way behind. Their, their lung capacity isn't up to your running pace yet. And, and here, just when they're struggling, you say, now be perfect. Or imagine coaching your child's team. I had a group of four-year-old soccer players not too long ago, almost all of whom were in this church. And I can just imagine getting down on their level and saying, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do today. I want you to space the floor a little bit. Maybe no crying this time. Let's keep our shirts on. Uh, and, uh, and here we go. All right, go team. Oh, and you. Be perfect. Just, no, no, no. Perfect. That's what we're expecting today. You see, I was told that Romans let us off the hook. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is no one who's righteous, not even one. Romans 3, 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And whew, I don't have to be perfect. You see, those are hard. It's hard to admit that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it's sounding better and better when you hold it up to be perfect. But you see, Nadia Comaneci wasn't the end of the story for the perfect 10. By the mid-80s, there were suddenly too many perfect performances. Judges were searching for ways to reward innovation in the sport, and so people would do new things, and the judges would give them high marks, and all the scores were capped at 10. So, for example, in 1981 Gymnastic World Championships in Moscow, the judges backed themselves into a corner. One Hungarian gymnast, young man, steps up to the pommel horse. He was first. He performs a routine that's good, but everybody knows that's watching that they can beat it, and the judges give him a 10. Well, sure enough, he was the first guy up. Everybody else just has to do that good or better, and it was 10, 10, 10, 10. We love that, don't we? Just find somebody else and do a little bit better, and maybe that's perfect. That would be easier. You know, in 1988, they had a three-way tie again on the pommel horse. 10, 10, 10. It was the collapse of the whole scoring system. That's why if you tune into gymnastics today, there is no perfect 10 anymore. In fact, they're given two different scores, one for their execution and another for their difficulty. Added together, they equal more than 10. Instead, you, you get two scores. If you're have too many perfect people, we'll just change what perfect is. See, perfection is elusive like that, isn't it? You go chasing for it in all the wrong places, and it can be the death of you. 
You can kill yourself trying to be somebody else's version of perfect. And some of us are chasing after that today. Maybe that's why Jesus' words are striking here, because some of us are even killing ourselves to get everybody else around us to be perfect. We've lost sight of what kind of perfection we're even aiming for anymore. But notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, therefore, seek to make every situation around you perfect. He didn't say, seek to make every relationship in which you find yourself perfect. He didn't say, be the perfecter of your spouse. He certainly didn't say, seek to demand that everyone around you live up to your perfection. He didn't say, present yourselves to others as perfect. He said, be perfect as your heavenly father is. It was Brennan Manning who aptly said that the temptation of our age is to look good without being good. You see, we love trying to look perfect, but there are few who want to do the hard work of being perfect. No, says Jesus, if you want to be perfect, you just have to know where to look. And the place that you'll find the perfect image in which you were created is by looking to your Father who is in heaven. Be perfect as your Father is. You see, we're a people who love seeking perfection in all the wrong places. And Jesus comes in this difficult text, in this terrible command to remind us that there's nowhere else to find perfection than in God himself. That's why he gives us this command. And it all hangs on this one word, perfect. So I think we better understand real closely what he means when he says that, because he's telling us that's what we ought to be, because that's what he is. I want to give you three words this morning that I think help us understand the definition of the word perfect here. In the Greek, it says, be teleos, as your heavenly father is teleos. It comes from the word telos, which means goal in Greek. In other words, you're told to be the point for which you were intended. Whole, mature, complete. So the first word I want to suggest helps us get to the meaning of perfect is whole. Whole. Jesus probably didn't speak Greek on this occasion, if he ever did. A mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew. Most people assume that if and when he said these words, he used the Hebrew word Tamim, which means whole. Jesus is saying that you are to be finished. You are to be brought to the end that you were made for. From brokenness that you live in now, you are to come and live in the wholeness that exists only in God. To be perfect is to become whole. Not too long ago, we were on vacation in New Mexico, staying in a small cabin outside of Ruidoso. The family started doing a puzzle. That's what people do on vacations, I guess. I'm not much of a puzzle guy. <clears throat> they pulled it out of the box, a thousand pieces or so, and went to work. I stopped by the table every now and then, fit a few in so that later I could say I was part of the team. <laughs> they worked all weekend on that puzzle. The edges first, corners, working its way towards the middle. It was dinosaurs. 
got to the very end of the weekend, and it doesn't this always happen? Three pieces were not there. Every piece available was in the puzzle, but three holes remained, and the search began. You see, we had a couple toddlers with us, so there's no telling. The first one was found under the table. That was an honest mistake. The second one was found in the next room over. Somebody picked that one up and carried it off. But the weekend ended, and there was still one missing right in the middle. You couldn't finish the puzzle after all that work. And worse, it wasn't even our puzzle. Should we tell the next person not to start? <laughs> About three months later, we opened up the diaper bag. <laughs> I guess you know the rest of the story. <laughs> there was that elusive last puzzle piece. You'll be glad we, to know that we put it in an envelope and mailed it to the fine folks who lent us their cabin that weekend. You see, apart from the life that Jesus offers, we are incomplete. You are not whole without his love. And in our sin and misunderstanding, we're fumbling around and trying to make a picture without all the pieces. And listen closely, Jesus wants to put every piece together for you. That whole image of God that you were created to be so that you could reflect the wholeness of his life to the world. Jesus tells you, you can be whole. Perfect, teleos, can also mean mature. Some argue that the word mature is actually the best definition of the word teleos, but it's a little bit weak for this translation of Jesus' phrase here. But we do translate teleos mature some other places in the New Testament, so it's a great word for us. Ephesians 4.13, Paul speaks of a time when we all come to teleos adulthood. Mature adulthood. In Colossians 1.28, he says that his goal is to present every person mature in Christ. It's 1 Corinthians 14.20, it says, Do not be children in your thinking. Be, evil, uh, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be teleos. Mature, not like children are, but grown up. Hebrews 5.14 says something similar. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You know, you would think with all of these that maturity would be a mark of Christians. Sure sounds simpler than perfect, doesn't it? We can at least be mature. Maybe the bar is getting a little bit lower. It's getting a little bit easier to get here, but maturity isn't exactly going around these days. Maybe that's why Eugene Peterson put it this way in his message paraphrase of Matthew 5:48. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. That's his paraphrase, not mine. I didn't tell you to grow up in any of our sermon points today, he did. It seems like every other day there's a new political leader or religious leader or mentor, or athlete, or role model, who comes out with a new scandal about something terrible they've done, or hidden, or said, or thought, some action in their life they were keeping hidden from others. 
Why is maturity so hard these days? Because nobody wants to be perfect. They just want to appear perfect. The third word that helps us to understand what perfect is, is complete. Complete. James 1.4 says, Let endurance have perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, Jesus comes in our incompleteness and he wants to make us completed, striving towards the goal which we were intended for. That's how we translate this word teleos in the only other time it appears in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 19. You remember Jesus' encounter with that rich, young ruler. He comes to Jesus. He's confused. He wants to know what else he needs to do. Jesus challenges him by listing God's expectation. It's a list that mirrors Matthew chapter 5, by the way. And after listing all of the commands, that rich young ruler says, I have kept all these. What am I lacking? Lacking? Now, wait a minute. Jesus just listed out 10 commands, and this guy says, I'm 10 for 10. Sounds like a perfect 10 to me. Jesus says, if you wish to be teleos, complete, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. You see, the list of commands was never the end. That was never the goal he was intended for. The law was never the true judge. The law was intended to reveal the real standard, God himself, whom Jesus shows us in perfect form. And it is obedience to God that this man is lacking. He's not complete because he hasn't obeyed. You see, to be perfect is to be whole, to live mature, to be complete. And when we strive towards that goal for which we were intended, we might just start to understand what it means when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if that's what the words means, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing how to define it. If anybody had ever worked out what it means to be perfect, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. They had a perfect explanation for every way to be perfect in all kinds of perfect circumstances. That's why in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, if you want to be righteous, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of, that, of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's some serious righteousness. After saying that, he launches into five separate occasions where Jesus takes a teaching that they had heard and expands it or corrects it. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He's teaching them that anger and adultery and divorce and false statements and retaliation and hatred are destructive forces, behaviors that break us apart, that make us immature, incomplete, broken. And he doesn't just leave it at the things they ought to avoid. Jesus gives them some of the most astounding teaching in all of history as he reveals to them what perfect is. 
He builds on the law they know from Moses, but replaces Moses and gives them a new person, a new leader to interpret it, Jesus himself. He's blessed the outcasts. He's helped the needy. He's lifted up the downtrodden. And now he talks about anger and loyalty and retaliation. And if he just stopped there, it might be palatable. Just don't retaliate. Just be nice. But he keeps going and tells us what God's perfect reign on earth looks like. He tells them to turn the other cheek when they're wronged. Not just to love their enemies, but to pray for those who persecute you. I mean, the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth in our world seems just. Lex talionis, they called it. The punishment should fit the crime. That makes sense to us. Maybe that's why we practice it so religiously instead of what Jesus says here. You see, he tells his followers not to resist the one who is evil. In fact, when you're wronged, it's better to suffer more wrong than to retaliate unjustly. Jesus teaches them that if someone attempts to shame or insult you, your actions of willing service should go a mile more. Even more, they're called to do the unthinkable, to pray and to desire good for those who do evil to them. You are to want for them the good you want for yourself. That's agape love. That, Jesus says in verse 45, is the way into God's family so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus is teaching them what God is like, what wholeness and completeness and maturity is like. Here it is. Don't miss it. Jesus' very mission is a demonstration of God's love. You want to know what perfect looks like? Just look at the sun. Look at the rain, he says. God showers them on all people, the evil and the good. God makes the sun to rise on people you would rather leave in the dark. He makes life-giving rain fall on people that you know are wrong. God who has the power over life and death provides life-sustaining conditions even for those who are diametrically opposed to God's goodness. That's who God is. And we thought loving a few people might make us good. Anyone can love the lovely, Jesus says. Look at the godless, the pagans, the tax collectors, the, the Gentiles. They love people who love them. You know, the distinguishing mark of being a Christian is not that you love other people. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is that you love those who cannot and will not love you. Your enemy, those who really get your blood to boil, those who really get you worked up, those who don't deserve it at all and can never return it and wouldn't want to if they try. God shows us his love because in that love is wholeness, maturity, completion, perfection. This is the standard. This is what you were intended for. This is the image of God in you, friends, that you would love others without reservation. You're to give grace with no thought of who deserves grace. 
He says, you need to mature in this one thing, loving generously. You must have this central peace to be whole, giving grace to those incapable of giving it back. Be perfect, he says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, we applaud people for some strange things in this world. Some of them are great, some of them are awful, but we've found all kinds of characteristics to build up in one another, to, to encourage in our children and in our friends. We applaud all kinds of characteristics. And I wonder, what if the most praiseworthy and acclaimed attribute in your family was the giving of undeserved grace? What if your family or your friends made it a point to let all those other things that we reward people for and encourage in others fall way below generous love for other people, for our enemies? Jesus says that's the standard. That's the measure of perfection. That's the instruction you have to get before you move on to anything else. And so how is enemy love not at the top of every list we make for who we long to be? Because it's who we're called to be. You see, the community of Jesus' disciple is to reflect the holiness of God in radical obedience to him and to his will given to us here in this sermon. We're summoned to the task of showing forth the character of God to the world. Friends, if you believe in Jesus, if you've received his undeserved grace, if you've heard the words of Scripture that say you were once enemies when his love came to you, then you are believing that this is the way to life. This is the way that leads to life. So don't return wrong for wrong. Don't withhold love from those who won't give it back in return. Don't allow your sun to shine or your rain to fall only where you think it ought to go. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if you're thinking today, this still sounds impossible for you. Well, you're right. And welcome to the club. But God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. And friends, this is the gospel message that when we were enemies, God came to us. When we were hopeless and unable to meet the standard he'd required, he, the judge, decided to become the one judged in our place so that his perfection can be ours. If you can't be perfect today, believe in him. Believe in his love. Because the only place to know the goodness and grace that leads to life is in Jesus himself, who gives us God's love freely so that we would pour it out on any and all that we can. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but here in the U.S., we like to measure things our own way. Our yardsticks are marked in feet and inches, which is unfathomable to someone from anywhere else in the world. 
We are based on 12s, the rest of the world is based on 10s. We invite fractions, everybody else grew up on decimals. It's been happening for generations, yours may have been just like mine. A whole generation of school kids told that we would soon have to switch from the metric, uh, from the imperial system to the metric system. It was imminent. You gotta learn them both because one of them's going away. How did that turn out? You know, various conversion movements have failed. You know this, every now and then a politician will put it a part of their platform, bring it back up again. But Americans have never gone metric. I mean, it's slowly but quietly kind of worked its way in behind the scenes. Some industries have made it their standard, but it's not universal by any means. And so really, we're left with a double standard. We have to teach two different units of measure. We drive a mile so we can run our 5K. We drink our two liters and buy half gallons of ice cream. We pick up a 10 millimeter bolt at the hardware store, but we just went there for an eight foot two by four. Why is it that America hasn't gone full on metric like all the rest of the world? The simple answer, says one author, is that the overwhelming majority of Americans have never wanted to. The gains have always seemed too little and the goal too perfect. And for one reason or another, we hear about the perfect love of God and we go on living with two standards. Every now and then I'll apply the one Jesus gives me unless it's not practical or helpful or beneficial to me and I'm gonna to revert to the one the world showed me first. One for what we expect to receive from God, unmerited grace, abounding love, and another for what we're willing to offer to others. Grace when you deserve it, love if you return it. Justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The punishment has to fit the crime. And why is it that we've never switched to this new standard of measurement, this new way of living? If we believe that this is the love of Jesus and the love that we've been given, this way is better and it leads to life. It is the way of enemy love, of refusing to be wronged, of giving more than we're asked. And Jesus comes and proclaims to a lost and confused world, here's the new standard, now live by this. I'm revealing the perfect love of God and you're called to reflect it to the world. And it's time, friends, that we switched over Stop letting the world tell you who you should love and how much and when. Stop letting them pull you into arguments that you don't belong in. Stop letting immaturity be a mark of Christians and incompleteness be something that we revel in. The goal is Jesus. The standard is the love of God. And it is measured by his outstretched arms on the cross that have freely given to you a love you did not deserve. So when you go, go and do likewise. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove what God's will is, his good and acceptable and perfect will. Let's pray together. Father, apart from you, we are nothing. We didn't deserve it. 
We didn't earn it, but your love has been given to us. Forgive us for all the ways that we've withheld that love from others, that we've tried to use it as a tool or a means to an end when you've called us to give it and to give it freely. May we be perfect because you are perfect and because you live in us. In Jesus' name, amen.